the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, welcome to Meeting of Minds with Jerry Boyer. I'm Jerry Boyer. The mind that we're meeting today belongs to David Bonson, author of the fantastic new economics book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. There's No Free Lunch. David, thank you for joining us. Jerry, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this. Now, this is the second interview that David and I have done. We did a sort of intro interview, which you folks can find over at the Edify Podcast Network, Christian Post's Podcast Network. Um, this is the one, David, where you can be as smart as you are. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, this is not, this is not intro. Uh, this is wherever it goes, it goes. Um, and one of the places we were going in the previous interview was you were getting pretty deep on Genesis 1 um, and what that says about the old controversy about a labor theory of value and subjective utility, uh, which is part, which is the foundation of Austrian economic theory. So let's, you know, let's go. Uh, tell, tell me about Genesis 1, labor theory of value and subjective theory. I think that um, we'll, we'll back up into Genesis 1 but by kind of historical precedent in classical economics, um, Adam Smith loosely wrote. Uh, it wasn't exhaustive. It wasn't systematic. But he loosely wrote uh, in a way that even Marx credited Smith with some of this concept of value coming from the labor that is um, put into it. And Ricardo, David Ricardo, a 19th century classical economist, also heavily influenced by the 18th century Adam Smith, um, elaborated on this labor theory of value and believed that there was a product or a good and that then labor was added to it. And the end result was the value of the product. The cost of raw materials plus the labor imputed equaled the value of the product. And it is very hard for me, Jerry, to believe that these men believed this because they were so intelligent, had so much value, have done so much to inform my understanding of economics, uh, philosophy, and yet intuitively, you and I know that if someone comes to your house with a table that they worked on for a thousand hours and did the most intricate levels of things, and we just think the table's ugly, we probably wouldn't give them 20 bucks for it. Right. And, and, and the notion that they imputed significant amounts of labor does nothing to our appetite for, for giving it, ascribing it value. Why is this dangerous? Because Marx took the classical concept of labor theory from Smith, Ricardo, by the way, there was some precedent for this, even in Thomas Aquinas. And Marx said, well, this is dehumanizing to the laborer to have the value they're imputing to product be removed from the laborer and given to the capitalist. Mm. 
who is then now essentially um, stripping the labor of his dignity because he's removing value from what belonged to him to, to somebody else. Why is this a problem economically? Because it was never true that value is connected to the labor added to it. And this is now full circle back to Genesis 1, what Karl Menger and a lot of the Austrian school and really most economists today outside of Marx's land agree is that value is subjective, that producers and consumers come together and that through a process of price discovery, we find value and it reflects the taste and appetites and needs of mar- time and place market conditions. Hmm. Where did this idea that one person just might not like a table and another person really believes this table is beautiful come from? I think it came from our, our nature. Hmm. And what is our nature? It was that given to us by our creator. He created us in his image. And how did God himself declare value? Did he quantify it? Did he, add, did he mark up his labor that he put into creation? Did he create a spreadsheet? And, or, or rather, did he declare it is good? It is good right. about the sun, the moon, the stars. Each day of creation, he subjectively projected value. And now we, as his creation and his image, do the same. Yes, if, if it's labor theory of value, if it's essentially the pain of creation, the problem is Yahweh Elohim didn't sweat at all um, uh, in Genesis 1. Um, so, the, so the value has nothing to do with his exertion, right? Um, so making little things is, you know, Vayar Elohim Kitov. God saw that it was good. He makes a universe, Kitov. You know, he makes a mouse. Kitov, it's good, right? They're different levels of effort. Um, so what's good about them is they're good for his purpose, for his plans. Yep. So a subjective utility basically gives human beings the dignity of saying, I don't need an ugly table. Um, I do need a beautiful table. And so the, it's, and Augustine anticipates this in the doctrine of value in usage. That's right. Right. Yep. So he struggles with a mouse is more valuable than... I think it was a diamond or something. No, that's diamond water. A mouse is more valuable than whatever, a piece of gold. In the sense that God created mice, it's living, it's a higher life form. But people aren't going to go out there and say, you know, fill my house with mice. Uh, They are going to go out there and say, fill my house with gold. Because scarcity and value to the person um, is what determines price. Now, And that sat dormant in medieval philosophy. Yeah. Not not until Aquinas. Aquinas stayed confused about it, stayed Aristotelian. That stays dormant until basically Salamanca, the Salamancan school, um, which you know about. And then that kind of gets forgotten. And then your Menger writes his first economic treatise, and he goes back and cites all those Salamanca scholars. Whether von Mises knows that Menger was getting all this from theologians, I don't know. But it all goes back to that Augustine, you know, uh, value in use. So that that revolution historically it's not just logically linked it there's a historical lineage from genesis 1 through to that there there absolutely is and and yet of course i remain a, a tremendous fan of the work of adam smith 
But I'm really sensitive to the argument that even though it was limited, uh, Schumpeter referred to it as pre-scientific, but there was work done by Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas that really is directly linked to some of the foundational work of the classical economist and, and helped build a kind of foundation because it's tempting for us to think, well, economics used to be prehistoric, pre-scientific, and, and now finally in the either classical school or neoclassical school or Keynesian, finally we've sort of put a little sophistication around it. Hmm. The fact of the matter was there wasn't really uh, um, uh, economic school of thought. Plato, it would be news to him that he had things to say about economics because he thought he was talking about law and politics and community. And it was really Aristotle who first started bringing up the economic dimension and, and yet it wasn't systematized. And, and there are things that we would disagree with. They, they lived in, right. in a, a certain context. And yet, when you get to some of the great work that guys like Adam Smith did, they borrowed heavily from what John Mueller refers to as the triple A. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Um, I didn't know you read Mueller. I was I've been sitting here thinking about him because he's he's really uh, shed a lot of light on this. That's who the that's who I learned about this. How this his, came from his Augustine. redeeming economics. Uh, of course, I shouldn't be surprised. You and I are, are drinking from the same well. But his his redeeming economics was a masterpiece. Hmm. And and he there are areas of, of disagreement uh, for me. I'm not a, a Thomist. I think that there. Aquinas had some significant errors, including on labor theory of value, right. on, on just price theory. Yes. But what's interesting about Aquinas is oftentimes he got the thinking right, and then he just sort of didn't apply it the way he probably should have. Right. But I believe that that thread that Mueller has written so astutely about from Aristotle to Aquinas uh, to Augustine to Aquinas is very useful. And I think he's right that Adam Smith neglected hmm. to keep some of these principles alive yes. and focused, focused more on a different priority around free exchange. It didn't contradict the scholastic school, but it ignored the scholastic school. And I think that helped Marx get a free ride at, yes. at undermining um, the humanity of economics that Aquinas wrote about. And I think one of the things that's very important in Mueller is that with with Aquinas, you get a collapse, excuse me, not with Aquinas, with Smith, you yeah. get a collapse of all forms of um, everything other than production becomes yeah. consumption. So for instance, 
if you give money to the poor, that's consumption. That's a consumption function for you, yeah. right? Whereas in the medieval theologians, there's a doctrine of production. There's a jo- doctrine of consumption. There's also a doctrine of distribution, right? Like uh, I get money and I give it to somebody. Oh, that's consumption. What do you mean that's consumption? I'm giving it to somebody. Well, you get psychic income, which I think maybe that's you know how Kreskin made his living. You get psychic income uh, from... Uh, from giving it away. So we're going to collapse all that down into consumption when it's really different. And so classical economics had no doctrine of generosity. Everything was just some form of selfishness. And then Marx comes along and says, you've got no doctrine of distribution. I'm going to build a whole economic system on what you failed to mention. And my entire system is about distribution, which will be redistribution. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And so it's very interesting, historically, the work that Mueller and others have done to unpack how some of these things came to be. And and, and even in my studying of economic history, it's so fascinating that John Stuart Mill was like the only textbook used, this treatise on political economy from the mid-19th century to the early 20th century in, in all of UK, all of Ivy League, all of Europe. Right. And so when Marx came around, so many of these things were, were to me, very prima facie refutable and problematic. Yet there had been kind of this free ride in a lot of the classical school that had some holes in it. Right. And so it enabled this intellectual curiosity. And all it took was Lenin to come around and say, okay, well, Marx is right on all this stuff, but the, 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 no one seems to have the guts to go do it. So I'm going to do it and let's bring on the bloody revolution. Hmm. And then the 20th century had to be spent um, playing out the horrors of Leninism. And so it, it, Boy, there, theory a, matters. Theory I mean, matters. You, you might think it's some arcane little thing. Get that wrong. And then what you're going to see, what you're going to end up with is the absurd conclusion that all profit is theft. And since a great deal of private property comes about from profit, then private property is theft. And then you just make those few intellectual mistakes and 100 million people die. That, that's exactly right. And, and then on the inverse, to bring back to the positive side, theory matters, ideas have consequence. And, and Karl Menger into von Mises and into Friedrich Hayek, there did become a 20th century counteract to both hardcore central planning that we would call Marxism and softcore central planning that we'd call Keynesianism. Keynes became academically respectable. It did not have bloodshed attached to it, but it was committed to the notion of a central planner. And it required a philosophical um, refutation. And Hayek came around with price discovery, with the knowledge problem, Mm -hmm. with the fatal conceit. And you got this intellectual... Um, battle that is played out. And yet one thing was missing from it for people like you and me, the leading truth tellers were not Christians, right? The Christian church was absent from the great economic debate of the 20th century. Hmm. So I won't take away anything that in common grace, Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mies contributed to 20th century dialogue. Thank God they were there to um, participate in the great intellectual journey of counteracting what I think was right. very um, 
misbegotten economic theory of Keynes. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that it was people who didn't believe in God who were defending the image of God in man. That's right. In, in the discipline of economics. It's interesting, Roger McKinney, who writes, who I added, who writes columns for me at Christian Post, um, has made a reasonable argument that von Mises, that early von Mises um, was anti-Christian because every single theologian and preacher in Europe that he had ever heard was a socialist. And that when he came to the United States for the first time, he heard preachers who believed in economic freedom, and then he rethought his opposition to Christianity. In other words, he knew truths about economics, and he heard people saying in the name of Jesus things that he knew were false. So he he chose the truth he knew. But then he comes to the United States, and he gets a completely different picture, and it's kind of suggested maybe in the last night of liberalism that he ended up somewhere in that Christian orbit, uh, or much friendlier to it at least. And and that's a it's a subject I'm actually very interested in, curious about. I come to a lot of these things about late life, almost sort of deathbed declarations of people reversing their their life's legacy. Uh, I come to it with a certain degree of skepticism. Um, and also generally it's not falsifiable, you know, and so right. I'm not sure that it can be resolved. And yet uh, there's a lot of interesting material there. Roger's a great writer on that stuff. But what I do know, Jerry, is that um, no matter how good the work in praxeology uh, was from the Austrian school, there was no way it was going to become uh, pervasive if we do not accompany it to anthropology. Right. And so I feel blessed. On one hand, the 1970s, they were still giving Nobel Prizes to people like Bob Mundell and Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. And in 2021, that is not going to happen. But on the other hand, in the 1970s, there was no Acton Institute. Right. Um, there, there was not people like yourself writing books uh, you're writing. And there was not this general interest in the intersection of faith and economics. There were not 2 million Google search responses to marketplace and ministry, Hmm. to faith and economics. So there's a lot of intellectual curiosity out there on the subject, and it's time that we help fill in that void. Yeah, and we probably would be winning the battle for economic freedom and losing it if we had the proper metaphysical foundation in a creational account. I mean, Mises and Hayek's arguments were so Utter, and Hazlitt and all the rest of them were so utterly superior to the to the Marxists and the Keynesians. And so how did they win? Because the, the Marxists and the Keynesians had a moral argument um, for their bad policies. And every and the other side tried to be morally neutral. We're not going to make any value judgments. Praxeology doesn't say anything's good or bad. You know, it's just does it fit your your ends? And people will not really, we, we have a moral sense, we're not just going to accept that. Um, freedom is good. It's not just useful to my ends, it's good. And if you don't have a God thaw that it was good, if you, don't have a, if you don't have a moral pull there, you're never going to be able to win the debate on the, the you know, uh, syllogisms or data. And interestingly, one of the great mistakes Marx made was he was not content to leave Marx in the realm of the descriptive, meaning he was not merely ideating as to what ought to be. He chose to make Marxism very eschatological, very historical. The proletariat- Post-millennial. He did. The proletariat should 
throw overthrow the capitalist and the proletariat will overthrow the capitalist. And that is where so many people have turned on Marxism. As you hear university professors say this all the time, well, he may have had some really good ideas. The labor really is exploited. There really is class struggle. There really is oppressor and oppressee. But Marx was wrong because we just haven't seen it work out in history yet. And I think similarly, mm. a lot of the secular Austrians who were mostly rationalist, mm -hmm. they were content to go to a sort of doomsdayism, yes. a survivalism, and a lot of their eschatological predictions have not come to pass. They're premillennialists, in, in to, use the, to continue the analogy. Yeah, what did Marx say? The philosophers want to understand the world, but the idea is to change it. And it's, wait, hold on. If you don't understand it <laughs> and you set out to change it, how do you know you're not going to end up killing 100 million people? When the idea really is for God to reveal the world through general revelation we see in creation and through special revelation, to understand it, and then to change it in accordance with that understanding. And I think that when you start with the premise that ideas matter and, and you go into what Marx was very clear about and, and he did us the favor of putting his cards on the table, that mankind was born into an oppressive war with nature and that mankind's need to work and immediately have that work separated from him devalued mankind. And that it put this position, it made this sort of depressing um, reality that permeated all his thinking. Work was evil, that adding value was evil, that adding value to others. And when you can start with the Christian anthropology, you can have a very affirmative and proactive and positive framework about work, right. about free exchange. These things don't have to be so negative, but to Marx, it makes a lot of sense why they were, and and yet he was wrong in the early premises. And so, as you say, there's no reason he shouldn't have been wrong in, in all of those conclusions. Yeah, and you know, I want to go back to what you said about the free market types generally being rationalists. I remember um, watching Milton Friedman on with um, my friend, the late Brian Lamb on C-SPAN, um, in the 90s, early 90s. And Friedman said, well, the debate is over about socialism. And, and, and Brian said, why is the debate over? And he said, well, they tried it. The, the wall fell. The data is all in. So that debate is over. We are more socialist now than we were then. So what's the missing thing? It's rationalism. He thought that yeah, the data spoke for itself and that human nature is such. This is, and Socrates said this. Um, your father wrote a great essay contrasting Socrates with Jesus. Socrates says that evil is just a lack of understanding and that once we have understanding, we'll do the right thing. And Jesus didn't seem to think that. He thought that evil is evil. We choose it even against our understanding. We suppress the truth. We can know the truth and still not follow it. And so that rationalist Pelagian view that all you have to do is explain people and give them the data and they'll do the right thing because all evil is just a misunderstanding. Boy, that sure didn't work out very well. No, and, and a lot of pretty evil people said stuff like that. You know, and the Deweys of the world, they all had this belief that you could sort of indoctrinate and program your way to moral sensibilities through intellectual accumulation of facts and figures. Um, but I have to say, I hear it from Christians all the time. 
um, oh, this town is impoverished. We just simply need to bring education. Well, I want to bring education to poor towns in America. I want to see school choice. I want to see competitive forces driving a better scholastic and academic experience. But the idea that the mere accumulation of facts is going to provide a, a moral framework and an apparatus for improved quality of life is just patently false. It, it, it is utopian and it does indeed ignore the moral dimension of economy and the moral dimension of humanity. And, and you're, you're right. My dad would have been incredibly opposed to such things, but unfortunately I don't think it's just the pre- prevalent viewpoint of, of many in the secular left. I think that a lot of folks in the church flirt with the idea that education has sort of a messianic role in American society, when in fact I view education as one aspect of kingdom, not the aspect of kingdom. You know, that's a really interesting point because I do hear that. It's usually in fundraising literature. <laughs> um, so the basic idea is think tanks, including Christian think tanks, um, good folks who say, well, young people have never had capitalism explained to them or, you know, or, or, or not just young people, but society. So fund our book, fund our seminar, fund our school, um, and that'll save the world and we'll yeah. send out free courses, whatever, and you can sign up for the free course. We did, this is something our mutual friend, Robert Sirico, has begun to talk about. And I wasn't there when you were there for his official you know, um, going away for retirement speech, but he did one in Pittsburgh. And what, what was coming across to me from him is we thought we could argue people, browbeat them, data them, um, into believing the truth when in fact relationship and love is a good deal more powerful and that there is something in the human heart that was never addressed by our arguments and that arguments the arguments didn't the best arguments didn't win and, therefore and, and, arguments aren't the main thing and this is of course uh, the great apologetical legacy of of my dad and and Dr. Van Til and others that most when someone has a heart objection to faith to try to use a head answer to get them in line doesn't work if the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge uh, I think you're going to have a very difficult time giving them E equals MC squared and expecting it to change their marriage. Right. See, and we think the fear of the Lord is the beginning of theological knowledge. It's not the beginning of economic knowledge. It's not the beginning of political knowledge. It's not the beginning of legal knowledge. It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning only of re- quote, religious or theological knowledge, when I think Van Til, your father and others would say, no, it's the foundation of all knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a, it's a beautiful point. It's an incredibly important one. And to bring it back to economics, it has a lot of uh, uh, application in, in apologetics, in philosophy, but it has a lot of application in economics as well. And that's the Genesis One reason for um, the book that I wrote, uh, kind of starting in the garden, starting with the very nature of creation, mm. the reality that we learn from creation, serving as not only um, background information that God made us different from the animal kingdom, that the, that humans are given certain rational 
faculties, creative faculties, innovative capacity, mm. uh, seeing the um, command, the sort of prescriptive element of being of exercising dominion, of cultivating the earth, of extracting the potential out of creation, the sort of pro-growth agenda of the dominion mandate. Mm. All of those things are very foundationally important, the beginning of knowledge of economics. Right. Um, and yet, if anybody is able to comprehensively develop a system of thought for social cooperation, social organization, free exchange, um, un to get to the heart of the matter of this debate about production versus consumption, which is really the heart of the Keynesian debate, right. the fatal flaw of Keynes really came down to his inability to understand that economics is production-centric, not consumption-centric. I can go back to Genesis 1 for all of this stuff. Yeah, and you've mentioned creational theology a lot. So this is very important. And this is something, you know, the Center for Cultural Leadership, which you and Andrew Sandlin established. Brian Matson is involved, and he's talked a lot about this. I'm kind of a newcomer to uh, that world. Creational theology is not natural law because natural law doesn't isn't personal so if you say this is a natural law this is just the way the world works like my friend the late jude winiski did well other people think the world works differently but if you say creational then you're reminding people there's a person on yeah. the other side of this yeah and if you go against his creational order you're going against him and nobody who goes against him wins so think about the fact that your desire to destroy the creation order is an offense against a holy God, and then count the cost of what you're doing. And in a lot of ways, I feel like what we're doing by, by reinforcing the truth and the power of creational economics is we're adding, not replacing Jude Winiski's argument, the natural law argument. What we're saying is, Yes, this is the way the world works. It's the way the world because it's the way because it's the way the world was made. It's the way the world was made. We're we're applying the why to the how to the to the what, and and too many people have been focused on the wrong part of economics. If you um, want to evaluate how humans can optimize the allocation of scarce resources, and you think you can do that without first answering why. Then, then I believe you're trying to do something far more uh, uh, futile than I've ever tried to do. I, I don't think it can be done. I don't think it can. And I don't think it can be done without the moral imperative. When Marx says property is theft and we say, I don't know about all that theft stuff. I just know that, you know, that free, that the, uh, the praxeology tells me that my goals are, you know, are fulfilled uh, better if I'm not coerced. That's not a moral answer. The answer no. to, to Marx's um, Marx property is theft is to say, no, Marxism is theft. Yeah. Uh, property is ordained by God. And here's the thing. Marx saw it better. Marx always, his, his atheism was in, in, inextricably caught up with his socialism. And for Christians should just kind of say, oh, well, I'll leave the atheism behind. It's barely, it's barely relevant. And to swallow Marx, you know, ignoring the, what Marx knew was the foundation of his belief is pretty um, naive, I think. 
and and yet I'm so grateful for the the work of our Austrian friends and and free market friends who maybe didn't um, have the right philosophical foundation. Yes. But but when Mark said free, private property is theft, they said, "Excuse me, private property is necessary for free exchange." Right. And and they said free exchange is necessary for price discovery. Right. They said price discovery is necessary for economic calculation. Yes. And they said economic calculation is needed for production. Right. We have to now come in and say all those things are true. And by the way, They're production, good. production is needed to meet the needs of humanity. Right. Right. And so this becomes the moral argument. The economics are there, but the uh, the underpinning morally is that apart from production, which does come from price mechanism and 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 free exchange and ultimately private property, but apart from that, the immoral outcome of not meeting the needs of humanity, this is the Burkean concept of of synthesizing the efficiencies of free markets, which neither of us would argue against right. with the moral imperative. And I have no interest in arguing for either one divorced from one another. Yeah, it's interesting. Soros made an argument against Hayek, I don't know, it was like 15 years ago, which actually, the, I don't think they really answered very well, which is if everything is subjective, how can you tell me capitalism is better? If, if a value is all subjective or, yes. or ideas? If value, if all, if value is subjective, if if everything is, if you don't have a moral absolute, yeah. Well, what Soros was doing there was attacking the epistemology of Hayek, and he probably was onto something. If we're being honest, I think so. That's right. If if um, because if if you go into the well, I'm not saying it's better to be free because there's a lot of that. I'm not saying it's yeah. better to be free. Yeah. I'm just saying it is praxeological necessary in order for certain things to happen. But this, but the unwillingness. Anyway, so that's an interesting thing. Maybe that we can get into that um, at some future interview. So, is there anything in "There's No Free Lunch," 250 economic truths, which is like David Bonson out there on the edge saying, "I hey, I put in, I put something in there. It's a little advanced. Uh, I might want to follow up on this more later. You know, whether speech or book. You know, because this is kind of an introductory book. Although it's deep, it's yeah. also introductory." Um, kind of like what the, whenever I write a book, there's always like a next step that, you know, yeah. that's like, it's like, I'm not going to get into this much. People might not be ready yet. Is there yeah. something in there like that? Yeah. Well, there, there's, uh, two different things. I touched the subject of credit and sound money in the book foundationally basic quotes with elaboration, but out of the sort of basic foundational first principles it's very tough to exhaustively cover monetary policy. Yeah. Monetary policy is an obsession of mine because Me too. I was sort of raised in a world of people who believed a lot of the right principle things and got every single thing wrong <laughs> about monetary policy. So I have a special interest <laughs> in, in doing more elaborate work in the subject of monetary theory um, if we're going to criticize the Fed, which I'm going to do, I want to do it for the right reason. I want to do it divorced from the sort of unhinged, conspiratorial, often false witness um, criticism that exists out there. And I want to get into the subject of where Fed activities can distort the price of capital, yes. can misallocate resources, can overly financialize the economy 
And those are legitimate criticisms that don't rely on a lot of the kind of kooky fringe stuff that's out there. So sound money and credit were not something I really got to get into deeply in the book, Mm. but I plan to elaborate in some of my other work in the future. There seems to be a systemic problem towards false positives for economic collapse and hyperinflation that are endemic to some of the members of our greater ecosystem. Yeah, I think when you're a... um, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And that's the, the dilemma a lot of them have, have pinned themselves into. But I think there's a certain intellectual open architecture out of the, the human anthropology that I have about economics. It doesn't force me into one particular prophetic view of economics or monetary theory or, or, or stock prices or whatever else, you know, people have gone down these different paths. Right. Um, and, and I really do believe a lot of the monetary theory stuff is more important because what has happened is that the Fed is doing an awful lot of things since the financial crisis that are incredibly damaging. Right. But the only people that were there to criticize it had been criticized so wrong it. about so many things for 30 years. Exactly. Yes. And if it were not for that 1970s legacy of wrong-headed predictions, then I think the 2010 uh, platform would have been emboldened in the public square. And in fact, the opposite was the case. Right. Chicken little. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, chicken, I actually, I'm thinking the boy who cried wolf. Right. Um, but eventually a wolf did come. Right. So the so that's a, that's the tough thing. Right. Knowing the difference. No, it's between... very important. Lest people sit around thinking Peter Schiff has been getting stuff right. <laughs> when someone when someone predicts an earthquake and you have a hurricane, they didn't predict anything. Right. Yes. That's a great point. And yeah, I, I debated with Peter Schiff so much in the yeah. aughts um, <laughs> on Larry Kudlow's show. And, you know, it was always just about uh, hyperinflation was always just around the corner. Um, yeah. So, but what's fast? Well, we could talk about this another time. All these people still have followers, no matter how many things they got wrong. It's fast. Yeah, that's right, and that's that's okay. Um, I'm I've resolved myself to the idea that that uh, some people are good at marketing, some people are <laughs> are good at articulating a message, even if it's not one I believe in. Yeah. But um, I feel pretty comfortable just trying to to speak truth and 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 letting it impact where it impacts. Well, and you know, here's the thing: some people have followers some people have a lot of followers it's better to have a lot of clients mm. um and it's easy to get followers in social media but um it, serious people tend to be more able to get clients which and then having more impact on individual people's lives by being more balanced in their approach well i certainly agree and if people were to ask me let alone my wife and kids what they're more concerned with <laughs> is it my uh, Twitter followers or my AUM uh, for you non-industry listeners? That is what Jerry and I refer to as assets under management. I assure you the AUM is a more, shall we say, uh, subjectively valuable data point. And probably more social good because it's not a distraction. No. You're really helping people. Yeah, uh, right. All right, David, anything else you want to add before we let you go? No, I, given... I love the discussion. Uh, even if we weren't recording, I could sit here and talk to you about this <laughs> stuff all day, my friend. All right, this has been uh, David Bonson, author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Uh, check out his Capital Record um, podcast as well. Um, and you've been listening to uh, Meeting of Minds with Jerry Boyer. 
If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.